I'm Barbara Bogave, and you're listening to how governments can help or harm entrepreneurs on America Abroad. If you're just joining us, we were talking about Israel as a high-tech hub. And in order to help streamline their regulatory environment, they might adopt something called a business court. It hasn't gotten a lot of press, but it's an increasingly effective institution that can help businesses from all sectors cut through red tape. Massachusetts, for instance, has one. It was started in 2000. Paul Dacier is the president of the Boston Bar Association and executive vice president and general counsel of the EMC Corporation. The business court there was initially created to coordinate inconsistent rulings regarding Massachusetts' booming high-tech sector. It was thought by the administrators and the chief judges that they needed to have a court dedicated to business matters, and so that's why the court was established, so that you had predictability, efficiency, and uh, consistency in decisions that were being rendered. And how exactly does the court work and what distinguishes it from other civil courts, which makes it so attractive to entrepreneurs? In Massachusetts, the general trial court is known as the superior court. And if there is a matter where somebody needs help in business cases, there are four judges now in the business litigation session that are dedicated to hearing business and complex cases. And when a person files the complaint, the matter can be heard almost immediately depending on what somebody is asking for. So, for example, if somebody has taken or stolen trade secrets and the company or the aggrieved party needs to have an immediate ruling, the action could be brought in the business litigation session and a hearing could be held and a decision could be rendered in a matter of days, if not less than a week. That sounds remarkable because I usually you wait and wait and wait for a court date. But could you give us a, a sense of how important that would be to a business not to have a delay? Well, that's right. Businesses operate at warp speed in today's world. Everything is 24 by 7. Businesses can't wait. They have to make sure that they're always protecting their intellectual property. That's their competitive edge. That's their innovation. That's their standing in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in the United States and the world. If they can't have an immediate ruling on their legitimate legal rights, they can be out of business. So the speed is a game changer. That is a game changer, and that's a competitive edge also for the court. Now, you said there are four judges in this uh, business litigation court, but one judge, I understand, handles a case from beginning to end, which is not often not the case in, in civil court. Can you tell us why it's set up that way and just how small businesses benefit from that? Having one jurist who is completely familiar with the facts and circumstances of the case will lead to consistency in how the matter is handled. So that is why there's one judge through the life of the case. So I think that benefits the uh, business litigant because he or she or the entity is going to know that there is not a delay, there's not inconsistencies, there's not uncertainty if somebody new comes into the case. And this is such an issue because business litigation is so complex? It, in many instances, can be very complex, very fact-intensive, but also the key thing, Barbara, is the rapid nature of the need for a decision. And I can't stress that enough, that businesses want an answer right away. CEOs do not want to wait. CEOs want to know how they can run their business or what a ruling will be from a court to protect their intellectual property rights or their shareholder rights. 
Well, stolen trade secrets is so at the heart of, of small businesses. They often start with this one great idea, and, and it's a, uh, the nightmare of every entrepreneur that their idea could be snatched out from under That's them right. by a disgruntled employee or, or, or a devious potential investor. So how do these courts protect intellectual property in a way that the, the normal courts weren't, weren't doing the job? The business litigation session has judges that are there. They're expert in these areas. They know the law cold. They don't have to sit there while the case is being argued to figure out what the law is. They know what the law is, so they can act very quickly. They know that trade secret misappropriation, if not dealt with immediately, will put somebody out of business and will not only hurt them, the economy, and employees, but it will hurt our standing competitively worldwide. So over these past almost 15 years, what kind of significant impact have you seen on businesses in the, in the Boston area because of them? I think there's a, a great increase in perception of the efficiency of the courts and also the climate as to how the courts will look at these cases, because there also has been a school of thought that the courts in general have been hostile to business interests, and I do not see that at all. And I also find that uh, lawyers now are advising clients to use the business litigation session rather than going through the private arbitration or private litigation process. Well, looking nationally, roughly about 25 states have taken Massachusetts' lead and, and formed some kind of a separate business court. Have you noticed right. any interesting innovations elsewhere that you'd like to see put in place in, in your, your native home? One of the things that the business litigation session judges have done is to establish a program that streamlines cases that they are involved immediately working with the litigants and the lawyers to determine the course of the case, but also having phased discovery a few years ago. So, for example, instead of a discovery request asking for everything from the beginning of time to the current point, it would be, for example, in a trade secret matter relating to some particular individuals or a particular department rather than the whole company. And so through this phased discovery, they're finding that the cost of litigation is dramatically less. The fact that the U.S. is one of the best places in the world to start a business is no accident. Our government has evolved over the centuries to encourage entrepreneurs in one key area, bankruptcy law. And it's really one of the big things that makes America much more entrepreneurial than other countries. So, says Stephen J. Adams, president of the American Institute for Economic Research, it's the ability of companies to try and to fail and to try again that's baked into our legal culture. Nothing's impossible, I have found. When my chin is on the ground, I pick myself up, dust myself off, start all over again. You want people to take risk. There has to be or needs to be some sort of safety net. This is David Cotter. And I'm the managing director of the Co-Guide Tax Center at American University. He says falling flat on your face is an American tradition. But so is trying harder the second time. Risk-taking is encouraged, but personal disaster is not. In fact, some of the most successful entrepreneurs in our country's history have gone belly up before striking it rich thanks to our bankruptcy laws. Get the facts on Ford Economy. Then take the wheel and test drive the big new Ford. Henry Ford, for example, in his first effort, was focused primarily on engineering the car that he was building. And he spent so much time engineering the car, he didn't spend much time selling the car. 
And next thing you know, his business was in bankruptcy. Two years later, he left that business, which continued to exist, started his own business, the Henry Ford Company. And interestingly, his original business that went bankrupt became the Cadillac Motor Company. Walt Disney actually started in Kansas City, Missouri with his first business. And through no fault of his own, frankly, through people that he was dealing with, ended up in a situation where he couldn't pay the debts that uh, had been incurred. So uh, he wrapped up his first business, ended up starting his second business in Los Angeles, and was one of the great success stories. And there were others. H.J. Uh, Hines had a bankruptcy transition in his career. And Milton Hershey, I think, actually went bankrupt twice before he figured out how to come up with a business model that actually worked. But second chances weren't always part of the American dream. Back in the day, if you couldn't pay up, you were sent to jail. In the 1830s and 40s, the creditors pursuing their debtors would simply note in their accounts, GTT, gone to Texas. And the notion that's where the debtors had fled to start over. Harvard Law Professor Bruce Mann. I'm a legal historian. I've written about bankruptcy, insolvency, imprisonment for debt in the American Revolutionary era. Then, as today, says Mann, debt affected every strata of society. James Wilson, one of the framers of the Constitution, was arrested and imprisoned several times for debt. In fact, he died fleeing his creditors even while he was a sitting justice of the United States Supreme Court. There was a huge shift in the 18th century because as the economy grew more complex, grew more commercial, people were taking risks all the time. And they came to recognize that when you take risks, stuff happens that's just not your fault. A storm sinks a ship that you have a cargo on, or pirates uh, or privateers take it over. Uh, Hailstorms wipe out crops. No cracked earth, no blistering sun, no burning wind, no grasshoppers are a permanent match for the indomitable American farmers and stockmen and their wives and children who have carried on through desperate days and inspire us with their self-reliance, their tenacity, and their courage. None of these are measures of your moral worth, but they are part of economic risk. And it seemed that economic risk-taking really was part of, even at then, what became sort of an American national character. So there was an evolving moral code, but what really spurred change was a series of near-financial catastrophes. Throughout American history, federal bankruptcy laws have come in response to financial panic, financial collapse. So the first Federal Bankruptcy Act in 1800 was to clean up some of the ruin left by the financial panic of 1797. Revisions continued until after the Great Depression. In 2005, Congress passed the Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention and Consumer Protection Act to try to prevent fraud in the system. But for the most part, the laws for entrepreneurs have remained intact. And Bruce Mann says that's crucial for our economic growth. One of the things that has always distinguished America, in addition to the entrepreneurship, is the at least the the recurrent availability of mechanisms to allow people to pick themselves up 
and start again. And in the case of small business entrepreneurs, to roll the dice again and do it again and again as long as it takes. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. Listen, no one could teach you to dance in a million years. This hour was written and edited by Martha Little and produced by Rob Sachs, with additional production help from Flawn Williams. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. You can find us on the TuneIn or the new America Abroad app, or visit us on our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Barbara Bogave, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by Turkish Airlines. PRI, Public Radio International.